Good evening, family. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. <laughs> Almost got me there, Jared. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, we're family. We're continuing on in 1 Kings chapter 11. Actually, beginning chapter 11. I'm sorry. We're continuing 1 Kings. And tonight we're going to be studying verses 1 through 8. And we're going to be looking at Solomon's downfall. It's sad. It's sad to see what's taking place in, in such a man that was called by God. All I can say is, Solomon, Solomon, Solomon. Horses, chariots, horsemen, gold, riches. Remember God said to the kings, don't multiply horses to yourself so that the security of the nation wouldn't be founded upon military, but the security would be found upon a relationship with God. And Solomon violated that. God said, don't multiply gold and silver to yourself so that the riches of the nation wouldn't draw their attention away from the one that provided all those things. And as we studied last week, Solomon didn't pay attention to those commands of God. Nor did Solomon pay attention to the other prohibitions. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. And as we've studied that passage out of Deuteronomy as it overlays this chapter, the previous chapter of First Kings, we know that God has his reasons, doesn't he? God always has his reasons, and all of his commands are right. They're not grievous, and he's designed them for our good and for our protection, and the rules apply across the board, kings included. What we'll see is that Solomon's lust for woman, women is off the charts. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. It says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely... They will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clave unto these in love. Solomon doesn't seem to be a respecter of persons, does he? No. Women of the, the foreign nations, didn't matter who. He pursued after them. And Solomon, as you can see here, he had an uncontrolled attraction to women. God said, don't don't multiply wives to yourself. And what we see in verse 3, let's read it. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 700 wives. Quite a violation, isn't it? But not only 700 wives, he also had 300 concubines. The wives are considered royalty, but a concubine had con conjugal rights with Solomon, but they're inferior to a wife in that they had no authority in the family. But basically, they're at Solomon's disposal for whatever his purposes might be. 
He's out of control. 1,000 wives and concubines. And this is a willful, it's a deliberate, grievous disobedience of God's command. Not once, not twice, not a hundred times, but a thousand times over. This is a, it's certainly a sexual thing, but also it's an ego thing. It's a sign of great wealth that he could put on such a display and boast about it. Solomon isn't ignorant of the word of God. He was raised in the word of God. But at this point in time, it doesn't seem as though it matters to him. Maybe he was thinking, well, those restrictions, well, they, they must be for the others. They must be for the other kings, but not me. So rather than spending his life wonderfully and beautifully and meaningfully in a relationship with a wife, he chose superficial relationships with a thousand. You cannot love a thousand women as you can love one wife. That's the way God designed it. And that's God's way. He looked at women superficially as his objects, as their king. He's, he's out of control. And the word of God has ceased to have any authority over his life. And the result of this, as God had warned, at the end of verse 3, his wives turned away his heart from the Lord. You know where his focus was. Horses, gold, and women. Deuteronomy 17, 17, that command to the kings, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, turn not away from, from God. That's the implication here. And every one of his wives brought with them their false gods and idols into their relationship. And it always happens in a marriage. Everyone brings their gods into the marriage. That's why God tells us as Christians to marry only another Christian so that our relationship in marriage is not one of being tempted and drawn away from the God of the Bible, but rather something much richer, something much more important, that is that husband and wife could be a source of encouragement to one another in the Lord. And God's saying these mixed marriages will be a disaster. They will put your sons and daughters away from the Lord. And God states it so clearly and completely. He says, don't do it. He's saying don't intermingle with those who don't know the Lord because the intermingling will lead to entangling and will lead you away from following after me. And God's heart is always that his people would follow after him, that he would be first. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness? He said, those things just don't mix. Light and dark don't mix any more than one that's unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So we see the Old Testament prohibition, where God so clearly explains why this is so, and we see the New Testament prohibition against marrying an unbeliever. And God's greatest concern here is the unbeliever will turn the believer away from the Lord. But you know, in, in the years that we've been serving the Lord, we, we understand that so many don't want to hear it. And you probably know many people that have rejected God's counsel. And you've seen also a turning away from the Lord. So we, we have to be, oh, so incredibly careful. Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? So God put these prohibitions in place for purpose, for reason. And it's, again, for our good. 
And you see, when you think about it, it's a lot easier for, to pull a person down spiritually than it is to pull them up. And when you multiply it by a thousand, you've gotten the mess that Solomon is faced with here. The importance of marrying in the Lord according to God's plan, one man, one woman, it's of supreme importance and it cannot be minimized. We find a dangerous progression here in Solomon's wife. God said, Solomon, as well as all the other kings, don't multiply horses to yourself. So what did Solomon do? He multiplied horses to himself. God said, don't multiply to yourself silver and gold. So what did Solomon do? Well, he multiplied gold to himself over and over and over again. And we saw the billions of dollars that he had racked up in gold, remember? So much gold that silver was considered to be just as stones. It meant nothing to them anymore. Then, of course, God said, Solomon, don't multiply wives to yourself. And he multiplied wives to himself to the tune of one times 1,000. What was the result of that? There had to be a consequence to that. There had to be a result, and the result is exactly as God warned. They shall surely turn your heart away from your God to their gods. Look at verse 4. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. At first, they came in with their gods, and Solomon seemed to be holding strong with the Lord. And from Solomon's perspective, I'm sure it was something like this. God, I know that, that kings are not supposed to marry these foreign women because of the gods they worship, but God, there's no way I'll ever leave you. There's no way I'm going to walk away from your commands. They won't influence me. They won't pull me away from you. There's no way I'll end up worshiping their gods, God, because that would be foolishness, wouldn't it? Of course, and he said, I'm no fool. And here he is. His wives did the very thing that God warned against. You know, and based on the, the book of the Song of Solomon, it's easy to say that at first he seemed to know what true love was with one woman, yet he departed from that which was once so sweet. And for Solomon, age didn't seem to make him wiser. He seemed to be wiser in his younger days, didn't he? Age and experience ought to make us more godly and wise, but it's not automatic. Our relationship with the Lord is never automatic. Every day, family, every single day, bar none, we must pursue and seek after the Lord. Pursue his heart in his word so that we can hear his voice, so we can hear his heart, so we know his intention, so we know what he requires of us. And we can say as Psalm 119 verse 11 says, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word. We have to be in the word of God so we can hear the voice of God. But Solomon, well, he allowed compromise to creep in. And what started it continued. The migration from obedience to disobedience, and for any of us, is not made up in an instant. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, today I'm going to jump right out of the will of God. I'm going to thrust myself right into the throes of sin, away from the truth. Or I think I'll, today I'll ruin my testimony before God. It doesn't work that way. It works much more subtly 
And it happens when we allow sin to go unchallenged in our lives. And, you know, I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit of God that challenges us in our sin. Yet, however, we can, we can block him out. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can silence his voice in our lives through disobedience and continue disobedience, but that's not his plan. He's the one that challenges us. He's the one that convicts us of sin. But we have to listen to him. But if we allow sin to go unchallenged, we begin to rationalize it. And, and we can say things like this. And you hear it. You hear it in society. You even hear it in some churches, I'm sure. Well, society accepts this. Well, doesn't, doesn't everybody do this now? Isn't that the popular thing these days? That's not a big deal. But family, it is truly a big deal to reject the word of God and embrace sin. So if a person tries to look for a loophole, the reality is you're stepping into a noose. That's the loophole, isn't it? It's deadly. And you see, the movement away from God oftentimes is so slow that you don't even know it. A little bit of compromise here, a little more compromise there, and it begins to add up and it begins to multiply, doesn't it? We can begin to do what? We can begin to drift away from our relationship with God. If you've ever drifted on a boat, it doesn't seem like you're moving, does it? But before long, you'd be miles away from where you are. Our daughter and her family, they have a place on Port Bay, and we would go out on a kayak, and we would just sit there. And before you know it, their dock is a half a mile away. Let me tell you this, the dock didn't move. Wow. We just drifted. <laughs> what do you have to do in order to drift? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything to drift away from the Lord. And before you know it, you're miles away from your Redeemer. But you know what, family? Jesus Christ is the anchor of our soul, isn't he? He's the one that holds us fast. He's the one that holds on to us. He is the one that grounds us. But family, we need to pay attention to him. Well, how does this drift start in a person's life? Well, priorities change. Hey, I got more important things to do. I don't, I don't need to read my Bible. I don't have time to open up my Bible today. And then today becomes tomorrow. Or, well, you know what? It's been two days. I'll, I'll make up for it another time. I'll read three times as much the third day. It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. We can get so busy. You know, lives are so busy, family. Aren't our lives just crammed with stuff? Our attention is going from here to here to here to here to here when it ought to be right there on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, give me your priorities today. There's all these things that are impacting my life now. Lord, which would you have me to do? He might say nothing. Just keep your eyes on me. But we're so busy. We don't have the time. And then we begin to make excuses. Things like, well, you know, I've been to a prayer meeting this week. I've been to a midweek service. I, I don't think I need to go on Sunday. Oh, I've already read that passage in the scriptures. So I know it's, I'm just going to be bored. Or it's too windy out. It's too hot. It's too cold. Someone took my seat last week. And, and so and so. I mean... We can make up a million things, can't we? Yep. I've heard people say, this is sad. I came into church and a person looked at me funny. Okay. 
Maybe they had something in their eye. I don't know. I don't know. But we can't be looking for excuses not to come. We need a purpose in our heart to be with God's people and to be in his word. You know, if a person starts drifting away, then coming to church is no longer important, and therefore it's not a priority. It needs to be a priority. Why? Because God says it's a priority. Forsake not the assembling together of yourselves, as the manner of some is. But, but more and more we're together together as we see the day approaching. Is the day approaching? I mean, look around. You can't help but think, well, I don't know how many people have said to me in the last week or month, doesn't it seem like the end times are here? Yeah. Well, it seemed like it back in the apostles' day too. But how much closer are we now? And we see the signs of all around us now. You know, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, you name it, earthquakes, huge earthquake in the Middle East. Sad. Thousands and thousands of people perishing. Signs of the times, for sure. How about your prayer time? Is it still a priority? Is it still something that you value? Is it still something that you know that you need, that you need, that you need? Or is it, I'll put it off. Sounds subtle. All these things are subtle. They're little steps, but they begin to add up. That's how a drift begins. And before you know it, you're a long ways from where you ought to be. So I think this is a good time for us. You know, we're, we're here tonight, and we love the Lord. We love each other. You're here because God brought you here tonight. It's a good time to just take a look at your life and maybe ask some of the hard questions. Like, have I backed off in my relationship with Jesus? Where am I? Have I slacked off or, or backed off? Have I stopped doing what I once thought was so important to me? And I just don't do it anymore. I've got other things to do. Or what small changes have I allowed in my life since that time that I was so close to Jesus and, and so on fire for him? What's changed? Well, let me say this. If somebody's moved, it's not the Lord. It's us. It's us. Each and everything that was not what it once was, it's like a, a tear in the sail of your ship, slowing you down, causing it to drift. And ultimately, as we see in Solomon's life, it could lead to spiritual shipwreck unless you say, enough is enough. And you know, I'm so thankful that, that Jesus gives these warnings in the scriptures in a, in a letter to the Ephesian church in the book of the Revelation. What did he say to them? He says, you know, I commend you for all these great things you're doing, but you've left your first love. You've left your first love. How about us? Well, Solomon drifted, and then he sank deep into sin. And Solomon's lust, well, it exceeded his trust, didn't it? Didn't trust the Lord anymore. He indulged sexually. He overindulged sexually, sinning without restraint. And the gods of those women, they became Solomon's gods too. Notice in verse 4, it says, Solomon's heart was not perfect or at peace with the Lord his God. 
as was the heart of David, his father. What can be said of that? Well, think about David. David's called a man after God's own heart. Did David sin? Yes, he did, of course. Did he have many wives? He did. First Chronicles chapter 3 says he had 15 wives. Both Solomon and David were wrong, but there's a difference. David survived spiritually while Solomon did not. David's sin did not turn his heart away from the Lord. He ended up repenting. So it's possible for a particular sin to be a source of hindrance or a source of ruin. David acknowledged this sin. He turned from it. Solomon, well, on the other hand, it seems as though from the tone in Ecclesiastes, it seems to be the case. Because he kept saying, it's all vanity, it's all vanity, it's all vanity. But the scriptures tell us here in verse 4 that his heart was not at peace with God, as was the heart of David. It leads me to believe that perhaps something was missing spiritually in Solomon's life. Because he wasn't at peace with God. For Solomon, verse 5, one after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. The goddess of the Sidonians, Ashtoreth, the goddess of love, the goddess of war. Ashtoreth was noted for sensuality and for ritual prostitution. And the priests and priestesses of Ashtoreth practiced divination and fortune-telling in these things called groves. Verse 5 tells us also that Solomon after Milcom, which is the abomination of the Ammonites. Milcom, if you know, is also another name for the, the, god, the false god Molech. Molech worship. Molech worship included the sacrifice of children by fire. Molech was a, a giant metal figure of a man with a bull's head. And it was heated up in fire with outstretched arms to receive the baby that was being sacrificed. It's, it's inconceivable. And I don't want to go into what we do in our society today. We all know about it. Thank God for forgiveness. But what Solomon went after, it just seems so hard to believe. And if the scriptures didn't tell us this, it's like, no, there's no way in the world Solomon could have done these things. This man of great heritage, he's the son of David, a man of great wisdom, wisdom that exceeded all the wisdom of the world. A man of great blessing, he turned away from the God that blessed him, and he turned to these depraved gods of pagan nations. And it's a tragic example of the power of the lust of the flesh. Physically, monetarily, and Solomon found himself in a place where he never thought he would find himself. He found himself burning incense on the altars of pagan gods. He found himself at the altar of Molech and child sacrifice. You see, family, he's in a place of extreme deception and confusion, doing things he would have never thought himself even capable of doing. Confusion, deception. What are those? Those are the, the playing cards of Satan, aren't they? Not only is he the author of confusion, not only is he a deceiver, but you know what? He's a liar, too. And who knows how he spoke to Solomon? But we see the evidence, we see the fruit of Solomon's failure to obey and to follow after the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14.33 
says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. If there's confusion, you know it's not of the Lord. But here Solomon is. And maybe, maybe he's thinking, you know, as, as things started to head in a direction it wasn't right, maybe he was thinking, I, I can quit any time. But just, just one more wife. Just one more. Then I'll stop. And then, of course, one more. This would, be, this would be my last, and then one more. And then before you know it, he's up to a thousand. He's way, in, way over his head doing things he never thought he would do with what seemed like there was no way out. First, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful we don't negotiate with the enemy, right? We have to be very careful not to negotiate with sin and say, oh, just, just one more time. I'm strong enough. I can walk away at any time. But you know what 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us? Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Our pride will say, I can take care of this. I can do it on my own. That's no, you can't. You can't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. We can't do it. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. In other words, what, what his wives did, he did. He wasn't following after God. He was following after his wives. All his strange wives, he did what they did. What can we learn? Well, remember the race that we're in. Remember this race and stay on track spiritually so we don't drift off into danger. And Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthian church a word of encouragement. Here's what he said. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he said, Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain. He said, Run in such a way that you would win the race and obtain the prize. And it's not enough in our service to the Lord just to run. It's not enough to just be a Christian but to excel in whatever God has called us to. He's saying, don't, no half-heartedness. That doesn't work. Watch the athletes. I mean, I'm sure you've watched Olympic games or professional athletes. What do they do? Well, they push themselves. They push themselves hard. They strive, giving everything they have in order to win. And when you think about maybe a 100-meter dash, you know, what's it take? Nine, ten seconds? We have no concept of the thousands of hours behind that 10-second race, do we? They don't just go out there one time and say, I'm going to run a 10-second, 100-meter race. Not happening. There's hours and hours and hours and hours of training, working hard, striving for mastery. And this is what Paul is talking about. 
Those athletes give everything up for just 10 seconds. All the sweat and exhaustion that went into that race is what Paul saw in order for them to excel and to win. And you know what? None of them go into that race with the goal. I think I'll end up in last place. I'm going to run for last. No, no, that's not how it works. And as Paul would observe these games in his day outside of Corinth, he would look at these athletes, and all he could think about was this ministry in Corinth and how far they were from understanding how serious things must be in their walk with the Lord and their service to the Lord. And he says, look at them. He's encouraging the Christians there. He's encouraging us. God is encouraging us. Run to win. Run for first place. You see, pure talent isn't enough. Heart is needed in order to succeed. And without the heart to excel, all the ability in the world won't win the prize. I remember years ago when I was playing hockey. And... um, for those of you who know, I was a, a goaltender for many, many years. And there, there was this one guy. His name, I'm not even going to mention his name. It doesn't matter. He was a goaltender also, but this kid was incredible. Just the greatest raw talent anywhere in this area. In fact, he was so talented. You know, we played, we played against each other, and they always beat us. But we played against each other, and he got a call from the Buffalo Sabres. It's, we want you to come to training camp. Thinking, wow, that's amazing. I would do anything to go get an invitation to training camp for the Buffalo Sabres. But you know what he did? He reported to training camp 30 pounds overweight. He got cut in the first week. Why? He didn't have the heart for it. He had all the talent, didn't he? But he did not work for it. He didn't strive to win. And we can think we're super spiritual, but unless we apply ourselves to the Scriptures and walk with our God, listen, family, we're not going to do what God would have us to do. Paul continued in 1 Corinthians 9, next verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Everyone that competes for the prize has self-control. This is what Paul's saying. It requires self-control. Solomon, he didn't have any, did he? No self-control. And look where it led. You know, I think of um, Jackie in her, her high school days. She was a cheerleader for the wrestling team there. And she talks about sometimes of these wrestlers uh, on the days leading up to a meet. They would work and work and work and work and sweat and sweat and sweat in order to, to make weight. They, had, they couldn't exceed a certain weight in order to qualify for the weight class that they wanted to wrestle in. She thought they were fanatics. They would eat nothing. They would wear plastic suits running around and around and around, around the school to lose weight. They'd cut their hair, doing everything possible in order to make weight. They had to discipline themselves by only taking in enough to sustain themselves so they could be fully prepared when they hit that mat to do their very best in the weight class that they were in. It's hard work. Do I agree with the the weight loss thing? No. But nonetheless, the point is this. They had to work hard in order to succeed. And, And the same thing for the Christians. We have to work hard. 
But it's really not work, is it? It's discipline. This is what Paul's talking about. Now take those athletes and how strict they are by allowing only certain things into their lives, and, and we need to carry that into our spiritual life as well. And just like an athlete, we can't live like the normal population and excel as Christians. You see, we're called to be separate. We're called to be different, aren't we? Because we are different. We can't be like everyone else and excel in our walk with Jesus and our service to him. Now notice that Paul said, now they do it to obtain a corruptible or perishable crown. But for us, what is it? It's an incorruptible crown. Again, Paul would observe these games and see how these athletes pressed and pushed themselves in order to win. And then the awards. They saw the prize that they obtained. It was a wreath or a garland that was placed on their heads. And, and sure, that crown, what would happen to it? It would eventually corrupt. It would wither and die and rot. Then it would be of no value other than in the memory but Paul says, listen, family, we are running for a crown too, but it's an imperishable crown. One will last forever. In other words, to excel is to have that eternal perspective that what we're doing now will have an impact for eternity. And I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. I don't want to finish like Solomon. I want to finish strong. And don't we want to finish our course with joy? I want to finish my course with joy. And there's one way to do it. Hebrews 12, verse 1. We're going to close with this verse. Let us lay aside every weight. Not some. Let us lay aside every weight. In other words, anything that weighs us down in our relationship with Jesus, in our race towards the finish line, he says, if it weighs you down, get rid of it. Lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Anything that weighs us down in our relationship with Jesus, let it go. And pursue that which is good. Things we talked about this evening, things like you know, reading our Bibles every single day. Enjoying fellowship, just like we're doing tonight. Spending time in prayer. Coming to church. Enjoying Jesus. Enjoy Jesus, family. Enjoy him. He's always good. He's only good. And it provides only what's best for you. And be careful. There's a lot of opportunities for us to drift away. But I don't want to hear these words from Jesus. You've left your first love. What words I want to hear are well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that the words that you want to hear too? And we can and we will. Let's run the race well. Staking, staying close to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the lover of our soul, the savior of our lives. So, Father, we come to you tonight. and Lord, sometimes the, the, the biggest lessons are learned through, through failure. Certainly, at times, our own failure. But we can look 
at the scriptures and we see the things that, that held on to Solomon and he held on to things that he had no business holding on to rather than holding on you. He held on to these things and riches and horses, power, women, and he forsook the one that loved him so and blessed him so abundantly. And help us, Father, just keep on running. We want the strength and we want the endurance to just keep on doing what you would have us to do. And sometimes it means we're, we're, we're standing against a majority that, that don't love you. Standing against a majority of people that don't like us. And it's okay. You told us, Jesus, that, that what would happen if they've rejected you, they would reject us also. We don't want to be discouraged. We want to be encouraged. And you're the one that encourages us. And we thank you, Father, for the word of God. And I pray that you would help us every single day. We look to you. We look to you, Jesus, the God of hope, the God of grace, and the God of mercy, the God that gives us strength. Strengthen us now for your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's stand and worship our Lord together.